a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person wild about wild farming, wild farming. In studio with us is Brian DeVord. He's a, the author of Wildly Successful Farming, Sustainability, and the New Agricultural Land Ethic. Um, he's also worked with the Land Stewardship Project for about 25 years. And later in the program, we're going to be joined by farmer Loretta Jaus, who restored, who, they're in the process of restoring their dairy farm into a wildlife habitat. Um, so welcome to the show, Brian. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. Okay, so what is wild farming? Well, wild farming, the kind of the way I lay it out in the book is it's uh, examples of farmers who have broken down that barrier between the natural ecosystem and the, I guess, agronomic ecosystem of their farm. They have, uh, they kind of refuse to separate the two. And so they're combining things like uh, perennial plant systems, wildlife habitat, building their soil health with producing food. And uh, it's, they're really, like I said, they really, agriculture kind of historically, at least for the past several decades, has separated those two, saying, well, we're going to produce food on one a part of our land, and we're going to have natural habitat on a different part of the land, and the, the two ships shall not meet in the night, that they're going to be and separated. The results of that type of uh, separation thinking have been tragic. Now, out this week is a report, Living Planet Report 2018, and it was published by the World Wildlife Fund. The report concludes that about mammals, about 60% of mammals have fell on average between 1970 and 2014. And this is a quote, the collapse of the global wildlife population is a warning sign that nature is dying. Yeah, and I think what's really, there's been some other research that's been coming out recently on things like climate change, uh, you know, habitat destruction in general, uh, water quality, and so they all kind of come to the same conclusion that while, say, wildlife refuges, national parks, uh, wilderness areas are still very critical, they're not going to solve the problem on their own. We really need help from private land, and in the, here in the Midwest, that means agricultural land. So we really need to rely on these wildly successful farmers to help us deal with things like getting more ha wildlife habitat on the land, more pollinator habitat, sequester that carbon. We really need to, we can't just rely on public public lands or private nature preserves. Right, because right now in the world, about 49% of the, the land mass of earth is used for human agriculture. Correct. Yeah. And we need to eat. We do need to <laughs> we eat. We need to eat, but we also need to uh, manage that land in a sustainable manner so that we can continue to eat in the future and so that, and also can have a, uh, a landscape that is sustainable environmentally and, and, and uh, quality of life from a quality of life point of view. Right. Now, quoting again from that uh, report, Living Planet Report 2018, we are the first generation that has a clear picture of the value of nature and our impact on it. We may be the last that can take action to reverse this trend from now until 2020 will be a, device, a decisive moment in history. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I think um, it can get, you can get really depressed thinking about stuff like that, but I've been very fortunate in the last 25 years while I've been working for the Land Stewardship Project to be able to travel throughout the Midwest and see some farms that are really making a difference on the landscape and really uh, showing that you can have uh, food production, you can be uh, profitable, but also you can do it in a way that the land is improved it's not just maintaining the status quo you're improving that land you're 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 benefiting that land in the lands in the long term you're really making it regenerative not just sustainable but regenerative you're regenerative it's a very powerful concept that yeah. regenerative and then joining us right now by phone is loretta jobs um and you are a farmer good morning yes, and welcome to food freedom radio loretta welcome thank you um so tell us a little bit about your farm where is it located we're about 90 miles southwest of the Twin Cities in Sibley County, um, and uh, we've got 410 acres um, that uh, we are we are a dairy operation, so we milk 60 cows, and uh, and we are organic. And I've heard that dairy dairies dairy farmers in Minnesota are really having a challenging year. I can I can vouch for that. Yes, it's it's uh, there are challenges in the dairy industry. 
um, conventional and organic um, that are, are making it difficult for, for farmers these days, for sure. But now you've... You, so tell us about um, the history of this land um, in your family. Um, Marty's great-grandfather settled this land in 1877. That's when this whole area that had originally been Tallgrass Prairie and wetlands was opened up for settlement. And so this particular acreage has, with the exception of 60 acres that we rent, um, this acreage has been in the family, managed by the family since that since that point. Laura, I, I just want to jump in here a little bit. I, I write about uh, Martin and Loretta's farm, and one of the r- reasons that I was really attracted to uh, telling their story is I think they're a prime example of somebody who has broken down those barriers. That both of them have degrees actually in wildlife biology and thought when they came back to the farm that they would never use those degrees but they have and uh, uh, Loretta if I could I'd like you to tell one of the maybe striking examples of how you have really uh, kind of produced food in a way that's working with nature instead of against nature was that example uh, several years ago when you had a infestation of grasshoppers. I was wondering if you'd be willing to share that story. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I recall that very clearly. We were in our fourth year of drought. And, I mean, physically, the farm is, is always um, physically challenging, just the nature of our operation. But um, never um, had we experienced the emotional and um, morale challenges that we had these years when you couldn't produce feed, and the money was short, and we ended up actually sending off some of the cattle um, to friends in Wisconsin because we simply could not feed them, and that was pretty demoralizing and disappointing, too. And then um, we had we had noticed there were always grasshoppers on the farm, but there were more of them that year. They were crawling up the sides of the house and onto you. You'd brush them off and go in the house and you'd still have five or six of them on you. But we had gone for, we had traveled somewhere and came back and saw the um, a field down the road a ways that it was a, it was a oats field. And it looked like the farmer had just taken a moor and cut off all the heads where the grain formed. What actually was happening was as those heads were forming, that's a prime, uh, food choice for the grasshoppers. They love that, so they were eating the heads off the green. And I remember we came home and we were sitting on the front steps, you know, feeling a little bit panicked about what we were going to find in our field, which was in a real remote corner of the farm. We had to drive down a narrow dirt road and and, uh, round a bend to get to the field, and we were watching the sprayers go by with, you know, having marginal impact on the situation there. But um, we finally thought, well, at least, you know, if they've eaten the heads of the grain, we should go back and see about harvesting the, the stubble that was left because we need that for bedding for the animals. And um, we finally raised the courage to to uh, make that drive and um, rounded that bend, viewed the field, and just Martin stopped the truck, and we just sat there in stunned silence because there was our field in... Um, you know, with, with a harvestable crop, the, the ends, the edges of the field, you could tell they had been attacked, but um, they, there was still a crop to harvest there. <laughs> we we sat there trying to figure out how could this be, figuring it was maybe the diversity of the farm or the fact that we have small fields and it was harder for more grasshoppers to find that little field back there. But it took us five years before I was telling that story to someone and and. A veterinarian who works with organic farmers heard that story. <laughs> he said, don't you know what that was? Because of the way we manage the farm, because of our priority on, on building healthy soil and supporting the biology, the wildlife, I guess I could say, the wildlife that's in the soil um, that that supports the crops, um, we, we had a higher sugar content in our crops. And sugar is one of the key ingredients in alcohol. So as these grasshoppers are metabolizing, um, the grasshoppers are metabolizing that sugar, um, 
as as alcohol, and many of you know they either died or they just <laughs> kind of uh, went off somewhere with and left the crop. But they so, died happy. Yeah. They died happy. So they were drunk cat- uh, grasshoppers, and they didn't hurt your yield. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, we had a harvestable crop, and. Um, you know, they were, normally grasshoppers have pretty quick reflexes, but these were just going through the combine and, and, and sitting there, which was confounding for us, but now we know why. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of, that is funny. That's funny. Okay, so you and your, t- tell me your personal background. What kind of degree did you have, and did you think you were going to be a farmer? <laughs> In my wildest dreams, I would have never anticipated being a farmer, um, but I, I graduated with a degree in wildlife biology. Martin's degree was in wildlife management, um, and uh, so that that was how we came to the farm. And so uh, what do you think of wildly successful farming? I, I'm... I'm excited. I'm encouraged, um, and, and I have to say, I, I owe this to Brian because I, you know, we're working here on the farm. You put in long hours, and 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 I I tend to just bite off little pieces of the challenges that we face, and and maybe don't always take no. I often don't always take the time to step back and look at the big picture of what's happening. And Brian does such a beautiful job, always, but particularly in this book. Of, of pulling that together and, and bringing the whole wonderful picture together about, you know, what the potential is what the potential for is. turning Loretta, around this food. Loretta, Justin, we're going to need to be taking a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about Wildly Successful Farming, a new book out by Brian DeVore. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coop. P. AM 950 listeners, we have a home cleaning company with an offer just for you. They're Blue Sky Services. Blue Sky Services will wash your windows, siding, gutters, clean those black streaks off your roof, and much more. Window washing starts at $100. Siding cleaning starts at $199. Call Blue Sky Services at 651-447-4484 to ask for the AM 950 special. If you hear this, you have an exclusive house cleaning offer for AM 950 listeners. Call Blue Sky Services at 651-447-4484. That's 651-447-4484. Be sure to pick up your copy of this month's Natural Awakenings magazine, a free local guide to a healthier and more balanced life. Each monthly issue includes timely, local, national, and global stories. Learn about alternative and complementary medicine, nutrition, fitness for body and mind, personal growth, sustainability, and much more. Natural Awakenings can be found at area health food stores, food co-ops, and retail locations. More information is available at NaturalTwinCities.com. That's NaturalTwinCities.com. Looking to offer high-end restaurant-quality food at your next event? Look no further than D'Amico Catering. Their talented team of event planners and chefs will collaborate to perfect a menu that best fits your needs. Whether emphasizing local cuisine or ethnic flavors, organic bites or summertime favorites, they're here to give you choices that align with your taste, budget, and style. Interested in learning more? Please visit D'AmicoCatering.com. That's D'AmicoCatering.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Shamblot from Shamblot Family Dentistry. We're the fear-free, get-you-out-of-pain-now dental office. And I'm Rachel Shamblot. Did you know a lot of people are afraid of the dentist? You don't need to be afraid of my dad. He makes going to the dentist comfortable and even fun. We don't care if you're a dental regular or haven't seen a dentist in years. We just want to make you comfortable and get you out of pain. If you don't see my dad, please see another dentist. Take care of your teeth because they're the only ones you get. Call 1-800-FIX-MY-TEETH or visit fixmyteeth.us. Don't wait. Get Black Friday appliance savings now from Warner Stellion. Get the same great deal and be ready for the holidays. At Warner Stellion, we guarantee our Black Friday prices so you can buy now with confidence. Laundry pairs, dishwashers, refrigerators, entire kitchen suites, priced with unbeatable Black Friday discounts. Plus, you can trust our specialists to deliver and install your new appliances without worry. So why wait? Get Black Friday appliance savings while they last. From Minnesota's original appliance specialist, Warner Stellion. 
I'm Laura Hedlund, um, and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about a new book out by Brian DeVore. Brian has worked for the Land Stewardship Project locally here in the Twin Cities for over 25 years, and he's a book out called Wildly Successful Farming. And um, Brian, tell us about how did you meet Loretta, and how did you guys connect? Um, well, I met Loretta through the Land Stewardship Project. She uh, serves on our board of directors and has been very involved in kind of the sustainable agriculture movement and the organic agriculture movement and um, was really uh, struck I think the first time I went there the first thing uh, one thing I do when I go out and I interview farmers is I grew up on a farm and and I pride myself on being able to kind of uh, uh, break the ice with farmers and you always talk about the weather and how the crops are doing and what struck me about uh, uh, Loretta and Martin was yeah, they they were kind of interested in talking how the, about how the crops were doing and the weather, but they were really interested in talking about how many birds they'd seen or how, how the waterfowl were moving through their property and that type of thing. And so the first thing they did was take took me to this 11 acres of habitat they had restored. It was a wetland kind of upland habitat, and it was just crackling with life. It was just it was amazing. And this is in an area it's corn and soybeans all the way up to their farm they're kind of an island there and uh it was just really striking and you could see where they had uh kind of really carved out this really nice niche which is really cool but what really impressed me was then when they took me around to the rest of the farm the parts that you know that are productive that are producing milk and crops that they were crackling with life too that there were birds flying around there were tree swallows there were uh pollinators everywhere and so it wasn't just that little preserve that little 11 acres that was alive it was kind of the whole farm was alive and it just really really uh um brought home to me it really got me going on this idea of this wildly successful type farm just to give people a little bit of a sense of conservation and agriculture Often the more common situation you would see is a farm maybe would get some government funding to put in, oh, a little bit of planting for some wildlife here or a, or maybe a grassed waterway to prevent erosion there, that type of thing, which are great. They, we, have, we get benefits from those. But then they go and they kind of farm very intensely the rest of their operation, and that can kind of wipe out the positive benefits you get from that other uh, thing that you've been doing on one corner of the farm. People like Martin and Loretta do not separate that. They integrate the whole farm. And for example, they have, and you could talk a little bit more about this if you if you want, Loretta, but they have very focused much on uh, a rotational grazing system, which is rotating the cows through a series of paddocks. That really creates a situation where you have healthy perennial grasses and forbs growing on the land, which is good for the soil, it's good for wildlife, the And whole Loretta, thing. I've got to believe that if I'm drinking milk from your the cows that are eating those healthy greens from healthy soil, it's better for me too. So tell me, I, how do I get your milk? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're fortunate to be a, a member of a, a farmer-owned cooperative, um, Organic Valley, based out of Wisconsin. Um, and their whole focus is on, on farming the way we do and, and providing, you know, that, that healthy product for products. And, and also, you know, we have to talk about the economics of farming, especially now in this time. Their whole focus is on, on maintaining a stable pay price for us farmers. Yeah, I'm, I've been a longtime Organic Valley consumer and uh, or a person that chooses that product. And, it, you know, you. you do pay extra for it, but I know that I don't want my eating to just be transactional. Transactional. I want it to be relational and how we move to that relational world. And that's what you've been doing on this piece of property. And I want to hear more about your story. How did you guys start doing this? What, what's... Um, Sure I, I wish I could say there was a meticulously planned <laughs> um, strategy for getting there, but, but the, the, the fact is, is a little embarrassing and quite the opposite because um, I think I, I, re, I distinctly remember coming up the driveway in 1980 with the U-Haul behind us thinking, huh, well, that was a waste of college <laughs> experience. <laughs> um, but then it only took a matter of a couple of weeks when we had a major dust storm go through and, and recalling from my background that it takes decades, sometimes centuries, for the soil life to create one inch of soil. And here, you know, I had uh, a, a 
soil drifts on the inside of my windows on the sills. So um, that was kind of our first aha moment, and then more of those came afterwards. And I think we just understood that those concepts that we learned about ecology, that, that um, you know, everything is connected and that those connections are often um, fragile, and so we have to be careful um, about what we do. And the way we, our insurance policy against goofing up is to build diversity into your system. There was recently a Nobel conference on the soil, and it was held at Gustavus. It was Nobel Conference 54, and they brought in um, a lot of the leading thinkers. Um, so Dr. Rotan Lal, he said that most soils have lost 25 to 70 percent of the original carbon pool. So what does that mean? Can you explain what that means? Well, I, you know, as we till soil and, and the way we manage it um, has a great impact on the amount of carbon that we hold. If you have, you know, healthy plants growing in that soil and you're not killing the soil organisms that process those plants and the fertilizer that, for example, our cows out on pasture will put down there for the organisms, um, your soil um, is is completely different than than. Um, other soil without those organisms. So, and and our soil will hold um, more carbon. Healthy soil holds more carbon and has other implications too for water quality and quantity. Yeah, and I just say that you know one of the uh, results of all of that is if you can build that organic matter in that soil and build that carbon, it becomes much more self sustaining it, it can generate its own fertility it, as Loretta says it holds together better it uh, can manage water better it manages moisture you can make better use of the moisture that's there um, it, you, you see all these benefits and of course when you're building carbon you're sequestering carbon and keeping it you know out of the out of the atmosphere and that's sequestering carbon I mean carbon farming is one way people phrase it. it's it's one of the major solutions to uh, the climate crises that we are facing yeah, and I think one of the things that, that's really exciting about the soil, kind of the soil health revolution that we're seeing, there's been just a ton of interest in the last five, six years uh, amongst even conventional farmers in building soil health. And one of the reasons for that was another very big innovation that we that kind of hit this, the Midwestern, Midwestern agricultural areas uh, maybe 30 years ago was no-till farming, which is very effective. It's, it's a way you, you avoid plowing up the soil and exposing it. What they discovered a few years ago was that's not enough, uh, that you were seeing erosion even on land that it had been no-tilled because the soil was sick. It wasn't biologically active. So when you combine things like no-till with building soil health, using cover crops, rotational grazing, that type of thing, you really have soil that's, like I said, self-sustaining. You're not as reliant on uh, fertilizer, chemicals, you can break up uh, pest cycles very easily that way. So we're going to need to take a break, and you're listening to Food Freedom Radio. With us is Brian DeVort. He's um, the author of Wildly Successful Farming, Sustainability, and the New Agricultural Land Ethic. He's also a longtime employee at uh, Land Stewardship Project. We also have with us farmer Loretta Jouse, um, who's restoring their land, doing wild, wildly successful farming. And we come back, I want to ask Loretta about how do the neighbors, how do we get this idea to spread far quicker in a rural area, and does it have to do with making more money? Be sure to pick up your copy of this month's Natural Awakenings magazine, a free local guide to a healthier and more balanced life. Each monthly issue includes timely, local, national, and global stories. Learn about alternative and complementary medicine, nutrition, fitness for body and mind, personal growth, sustainability, and much more. Natural Awakenings can be found at area health food stores, food co-ops, and retail locations. More information is available at NaturalTwinCities.com. That's NaturalTwinCities.com. Do yourself a favor and check out the amazing cuisine of EatLocalMinnesota.com. More than just a website, EatLocalMinnesota.com provides you with the best local and independently owned restaurants in the Twin Cities. Serving family favorites in Minneapolis since 1964, Milda's Cafe is a great spot for breakfast or lunch. Wake up with their delicious Eggs Benedict or biscuits and gravy and savor their many great lunch options. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, Milda serves authentic Finnish pasties. Open weekdays 6 to 3 and now on weekends 8 to 2 on Glenwood Avenue, 4 blocks east of Penn. 
Specializing in Szechuan and Peking cuisine, the Great Wall Chinese Restaurant has been a local favorite since 1981. They offer one of the most extensive menus in the Twin Cities. Favorites include the sesame chicken, imperial beef, and Peking duck. The Great Wall Restaurant is located off 45th and France with takeout available too. More at greatwallrestaurant.us. In the process of planning your next event, consider D'Amico Catering. Their team brings extensive experience and knowledge to the table to ensure that your event runs smoothly. With over 20 years of event planning and culinary experience, D'Amico has established their reputation as the Twin Cities' premier caterer. They've been trusted to carry out numerous weddings, corporate functions, and nonprofit fundraisers. D'Amico has the right staff to ensure your event is perfectly executed every time. More at D'AmicoCatering.com. Hello, I'm Dave Hutch, DFL Endorsed Candidate for Hennepin County Sheriff. I've been a police officer for 15 years, and I'm running for sheriff because I believe our elected sheriff should have a vision of public safety that includes everyone, no matter where they're from or what they look like. I believe in transparency, responsiveness, and open communication. As sheriff, I will rethink how the sheriff's office interacts with ICE. I'll require crisis intervention and de-escalation training for all Hennepin County deputies. I will make it a priority to protect everyone of Hennepin County, including our immigrant communities and our native community. I will provide mentally ill individuals with treatment and services needed to stay out of jail. I will never send Hennepin County deputies to break up protests at places like Standing Rock. And I will never stop working to improve the relationships between the police and the communities we serve. Let's start working together for a safe and healthy Hennepin County. I'm Dave Hutch, and I'm asking for your vote for Hennepin County Sheriff. Paid and prepared by Hutch for Sheriff Volunteer Committee. With your AM 950 weather, I'm Hunter Hawes. Saturday, chance of showers with a high near 45. Sunday, rain with a high near 42. And Monday, mostly cloudy with a high near 48. Don't miss the Home Improvement and Design Expo this Saturday only at the Maple Grove Community Center. Featuring up to 150 home improvement companies, giveaways, and more. It's the Home Improvement and Design Expo this Saturday at the Maple Grove Community Center. See it all at ExpoGuys.com. That's ExpoGuys.com. Farming, and of course, the wildly successful. There's kind of a pun in that. Can this type of uh, ecologically responsible farming also help people make money? What do you think, Loretta? Does it does it help with the money part? Well, definitely. I, I, you know, being that we're organic and and we're you know where we market our milk, um, there's definitely a focus on, on making farming sustainable for for farmers. Um, so yeah, the money you have to be able to you have to be able to meet expenses, um, and and I think um, there are a number of ways um, that we could make some improvements there. I think. Yeah, I, I w- uh, have been in a couple of areas where I've really seen how the uh, financial sustainability comes into play, and uh, again, going back a little bit to the soil health. And building that uh, those wild critters in the soil, uh, both in North Dakota and Indiana, where there's been a lot of work in this area to build soil health using cover cropping and rotational grazing, that type of thing. I've talked to farmers who have been able to. In one case, I know one farmer who he's not organic, but he's been able to cut his use of fertilizer, uh, purchase fertilizer by 90%, and he thinks eventually he's going to be cutting all of it out, and. He was in a very, very uh, bad financial straits and was uh, really hurting financially. This has helped him stay sustainable economically. In Indiana, there's where I've talked to several farmers who were bigger crop farmers, corn and soybean farmers, who by building soil health and diversifying their rotation were able to reduce, for example, herbicide use. Herbicide is expensive, you know, and there's other problems with it as well, but it's an expensive product to use, and they've been able to, to in some cases, cut in half the amount of herbicides they're using as well as the fertilizer that they're using. The other thing that they talk about is when you're building that soil health, you're able to make your soils more resilient in the face of extreme weather, which is a bigger problem as climate change rears its ugly head. And so they're making their soils more drought-proof, but then also 
when you get really heavy rains, their soils are better able to soak up that uh, water and not let it run off. Um, you know, those those are really, it kind of uh, add up. They do add up, and then you think of the environmental benefits of not uh, having uh, nitrates in the water and the runoff and the dead zone in the ocean. And yet, um, we still have an economic system that doesn't really see the consequences very well. Um, and so, um, but one of the big hopes that I've heard, and I heard it at the Nobel Conference 54, is that really um, doing, by reducing the inputs and by learning and doing more regenerative agriculture can actually be more financially profitable for small farmers. Now, has that been your experience too, Loretta? I would say so, and I think that grasshopper story is a perfect example because, um, you know, if, 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 if I'd had to pay for um, expensive genetically modified seed, if I had the normal soil amendments and then the pesticides and herbicides that you'd put on um, and then additional spraying for these grasshoppers, um, there's no way that crop would have ever, I, I could have made a profit on that field. but. The natural systems that we had built up um, supported um, supported the crop and and uh, and saved us a lot of expense. You know, there's been some fascinating research coming out of Illinois and California, among other states, looking at uh, the benefits of having wildlife habitat adjacent to crop fields and how some of the natural predators, uh, insect predators, as well as birds that are there, help control pest insects. And uh, they've been able to put some numbers on it, and it's it's in the billions that uh, it's saving some of these farmers who have, you know, this access to these kind of natural uh, pest control <laughs> uh, critters out there. And it's really, uh, I mean... Part of this is there just hasn't been research looking at that because the chemical revolution dominates so much. And I think that's the most exciting thing that I see is when farmers are able to team up with scientists, ecological yes, scientists, and, and come up with some of this and, stuff. And David Montgomery, who also spoke at the Nobel Conference in his new book is Growing a Revolution, he says we're in the fifth revolution. The fourth revolution was the green revolution and the biotech. The fifth revolution is the soil health revolution. And it's, it's this idea of not controlling nature, um, but um, working with the land and in an, in an ethic or a mutuality. Um, so, uh, Loretta, um, I want to know, how do your neighbors feel about um, your wildly successful farming? Well, I think our, we have many supportive neighbors um, and, and wonderful farmers, and, and though we do things differently, you, they still talk to us. <laughs> um, but uh, I think um, uh, we get, at a time, you know, there's a lot of pressure based on federal farm policy, for farmers, you know, when we came in the 80s, it was the, you know, they were ripping up fence lines and, and doing square inch farming where you grabbed as much land as you could. And then we thought that sort of had tempered and tapered off until 2012 when I was, I had to make like four or five trips into the Twin Cities in a two week period. And every time I went, I saw another farmstead being dozed. And if there was a little bit of a wild area, that was dozed and plowed, and I thought, what is going on? And it actually was, I think the last of those meetings was an LSP gathering, and I had arrived late because I'd actually stopped to photograph this. I didn't know what was happening or why it was happening, but they explained to me that was the federal farm policy, the farm bill that was paying farmers to to um, work up land, marginal lands, and, and they'd be guaranteed a profit, you know, a pay price on it, whether they got a crop off of it or not. That's um, you know something that's that's disturbing to me. Yeah, that's a really good point, Lori. I'm glad you brought that up. Is that uh, one of the reasons? Because we we tell these stories about these wildly successful farms, and so people say, well, then why doesn't everybody do it? And one of them is one of the reasons is farm policy has really promoted raising, especially here in the Midwest, basically corn and soybeans and nothing else, and uh, at just about any cost. And uh, Farmers have to stay in business, and they're going to, you know, follow that lead. And so everything from the crop insurance program to direct subsidies really promote corn and soybeans uh, year after year and not having diversity on the landscape. And that really feeds into it all the way to our land-grant system, which then 
that if that's seen as the dominant system, that's what they're that's the kind of research that they're going to fund to promote that, and it just becomes this vicious cycle. Right. So it's not like these farmers are bad people because they're not diversified. It's the way that they've been able to stay in business, and the and the marketing system supports it as well. Right, and so it's it, everything is complex and it's all personal, but the system itself is not very rational. Do you guys disagree with that? <laughs> no, I agree. <laughs> I agree with that. Okay, so how do we help make a rational system? Well, I'll just say, uh, and I, Loretta, I would like you to really jump in on this because I'm just speaking to somebody who observes this. I'm not out there on the land, but I would say we need a lot more full-cost accounting where people say, well, we have cheap food. Uh, we do in a way, but there's all these hidden costs, the environmental costs, the health costs, and all that. The chronic diseases are increasing dramatically. In fact, our lifespans are going down. Yeah, exactly. So we need to get that information out there. We need to do more research into that. And that way, that can influence both policy. We can have better policy out there that promotes more diversified farming systems, but it can also influence people's uh, buying decisions when they're in when they're in the supermarket or at the food co-op or whatever it can really that information they can come armed with that and go well, okay yeah maybe this is uh, I'm gonna save 50 cents on this packet but uh, if I pay a little bit more I'm getting all these kind of outsized benefits well I'm gonna go back to this living planet report that was released this week 2018 um, from the World Wildlife Foundation you know the percentage of mammals fell 60% between 1970 and 2014. And this is very depressing stuff to look at. But we almost, I think, uh, we really need to have dramatic changes because wildly successful farming can really make such a better world for us today and the future. Yeah, and I, one thing I'd like to go back to a little bit is talking about how we can influence people and, and get kind of people to maybe make policy decisions and marketing purchasing decisions that that affect us. Loretta, I was out at your farm a few years ago where you had a group of people who were birders uh, uh, kind of come out and look at some of the, I think you've counted like around 200 species of birds on your farm. And what I thought was really good about that, and you can maybe explain this uh, a little bit more of what happened, but you combined it with food you you had you served a great meal and then you t talked a little bit about connecting this habitat with that great food do you remember that i do yeah um we had actually been working with a a coffee company um that was um growing shade grown coffee normally what they do in in the jungles where they grow coffee is clear all the trees so that there's more sun reaching down to the coffee plants and they produce quicker and they make more money um, but this is, um, they wanted to do a, a, a focus some attention on this end of the bird migration route for those that are, are paying attention to, to the bird um, issues. And um, so we did have them on the farm, did a bird tour, and, um, and explained, you know, what we were doing on the farm and the impact that we saw when we came here. Marty was doing, he was part of a bird banding study, and um, so we, we only banded maybe a dozen or two species in 1980, the early 1980s when we moved here. Um, later on, you know, as we were having researchers come and, and evaluate the farm, we, had, we were up to 200, as Brian mentioned. So the connection was, um, you know, you, the, the, the shade-grown coffee, birds and beans coffee, it was definitely more expensive than, than the normal options you see in the grocery store. But as we were talking about before, these externalized costs that aren't included in the sticker shelf price um, are things that we have to be taking into account and 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 um, and adjusting for. So, um, is that what you were going for, Brian? Yes. Yeah, I, I just was really struck at how you were able to make that connection because I think people are, especially birders, may be familiar with shade-grown coffee, but they may not think about. Well, what about the cream I put in my coffee? How is that produced, and how does that affect those birds on, like you said, on this end of the the migration? Mm -hmm. Right, and and um, and and to have it be that that intersectionality where it's it all is connected. I mean, um, and so if we could spread wildly successful farming 
as just part of the status quo of farming. How do we do that? How do we scale up this type of ecologically responsible farming? Well, I think programs like this help, and I, hopefully the book will help a little bit. I tried to write the book uh, not so much for a wider audience. I try. Hopefully I, I explain things that aren't too technical and, and, and try to make it so people can identify with it a little bit. I think um, people need to challenge policymakers a little bit when they come up with kind of simplistic solutions to the, some of these complex problems. When people say, well, the solution to water quality is we'll put in this treatment plant that will clean up the water. Well, that's great, but we need to look at the whole landscape kind of thing. Uh, when people say, well, we can have this um, nature preserve and that's going to protect all of our wildlife, you know. We're going to take a break. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking about wildly successful farming, sustainability, and the new agricultural land ethic Author uh, with author Brian DeVort. Seward Co-op, serving the community for nearly 45 years, invites you to shop their two convenient locations, both offering the strong commitment to local producers and healthy foods you've come to expect. Seward focuses on locally grown and raised products, fair trade, and environmental sustainability. Shop their selection of meats, artisan cheeses, and house-made baked goods. Find Seward at 2823 East Franklin Avenue or the Friendship Store on 38th Street and 3rd Avenue in Minneapolis. More at seward.coo. There are lots of ways to stay comfortable in a Minnesota winter. Hot Cocoa Warm Socks and Standard's Winter Comfort Sale, where you can save up to $2,090 on a brand new 96% energy efficient furnace. There's also great deals on a variety of other furnaces and boilers. Don't wait. Unlike winter, these deals end November 30th. Learn more about Standard's Winter Comfort Sale at standardheatingdeals.com slash radio. Standard Heating and Air Conditioning, comfort you deserve. I'm John Peterson of Ferndale Markets, and I'm the third generation to grow turkeys on our family farm in Cannon Falls. We've grown them the same way since 1939, free range and without antibiotics. We're proud of the way our turkey tastes naturally, so we don't add a thing. Just 100% pure turkey. Preserve your free-range Thanksgiving turkey today for pickup at our store right on the farm in scenic Cannon Falls or at one of our Metro retail partners. Visit us at FerndaleMarket.com for more information or to reserve your turkey today. The fine folks at Common Good Books will help you find the perfect book for you or the book lover in your life. Find a huge selection from a locally owned and independent bookseller in the Twin Cities. They are always bringing in top authors from around the globe for special in-store events. Open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. and Sundays, 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Find Common Good Books at 38 South Snelling Avenue in St. Paul or shop online at commongoodbooks.com. Hello, humans. It's Ellie Krug with Ellie 2.0 Radio on Mondays from 7 to 8 a.m. Many know that I have a diversity and inclusion company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I want to share about a speaking event I'll be hosting on Monday, November 5th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. I'll be giving my gray area thinking talk on how to be welcoming to others. I'd love for you to join me. Go to elliekrug.com and look at the Human is Human public events page for more. Please come and please tell others. See you then. Looking to offer high-end restaurant-quality food at your next event? Look no further than D'Amico Catering. Their talented team of event planners and chefs will collaborate to perfect a menu that best fits your needs. Whether emphasizing local cuisine or ethnic flavors, organic bites or summertime favorites, they're here to give you choices that align with your taste, budget, and style. Interested in learning more? Please visit D'AmicoCatering.com. That's D'AmicoCatering.com. Freedom Radio, where we plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with us is Brian DeVore. He's had he's worked with the Land Stewardship Project for over 25 years, and he's just published his first book, uh, Wildly Successful Farming, Sustainability and the New Agricultural Land Ethic. And joining us by phone is uh, Loretta, um, and Loretta is a farmer who is doing wildlife farming. Okay, so if someone's just joining us now, Loretta, what does it mean to, to be a, a wildly successful farmer? I think it just means you understand the connection between things that 
you know, as a farmer, I'm not isolated just on my acres, that what I'm doing here and the management decisions I'm making are affecting people all around me, all across the country, and I guess even the globe. So that you need to proceed with caution. And before we went to break, you wanted to talk about how do we make this more popular, this, 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 these ideas of farming? How do we spread this fast? Maybe it's a combination of, of education and, and, um, and policy. I think once people come to understand that, you know, it's okay to make decisions, even financial decisions, based on your values and that when you're going into the grocery store and you understand um, how the various products are produced, um, you will choose a product that more closely matches your values and you may pay more for it. You certainly will pay more for it, but um, that... that you just are kind of looking from a big-picture approach. And I think, too, um, one of the things that would help us move that direction is, is in the way we compensate farmers. Right now you're compensated on bushels per acre. I heard Vandana Shiva, uh, an Indian activist on this issue, speak, and she said, what if we did nutrition per acre? And I think now oh. that climate change is, is clearly on the radar and certainly a concern of mine, um, what if we did carbon sequestered per acre? Um, that would take care of these externalized costs. We know that the very basis and foundation of our food system are the natural and human resources. And so that's where our focus needs to be on, on, on keeping those sustained and, and farming in a way that, that does promote that. Uh, you know, Laura, uh, you had uh, talked uh, earlier about how we scale this up. And I think... Uh, a lot of what we're talking about is kind of long-term. But I think one thing that I'm kind of excited about, and I kind of t uh, write about a little bit in the Wildly Successful Farming book, is this idea that these wildly successful farms can be kind of, I guess, lights on the prairie or little hubs of hope, <laughs> um, and that they can be examples that other farms can look to, that other farms that we would consider more conventional, that are you know raising a lot of uh, row crops and, and that type of thing, but they're able to borrow some ideas. Uh, and and I, I I I hate to keep going back to the soil health uh, uh, issue, but that's a prime example where I've seen farms that are quote unquote conventional. They're raising corn and beans, but they care about you know soil erosion. They're concerned that maybe they're using much more fertilizer to get the same yields as, as they uh, have before, are borrowing ideas like building soil health from farms like Martin and Loretta's. And are uh, they're seeing that interaction, that kind of sharing of information that I think is really exciting. And those farmers farm a lot of acres. And so we could see a lot of benefits relatively quickly if we could see some of the, the uh, adoption of some of these practices that we're seeing on these just real ecologically uh, resilient operations that, you know, not everybody's going to maybe be able to reach that in our lifetime. But we do have enough of these out there that I think we could see a lot of really good information exchange. And I think I love that word resilient. And Loretta, did you observe a lot of resiliency in the land? I mean, sometimes it can be so depressing to hear all the statistics, you know, how many men <laughs> Well, exactly. You know, I think in terms of what we've talked about with, with pest invasions, um, the challenges that climate change is creating and in terms of, um, you know, the, the intense storms we have and rather than the, the a year full of gentle showers, um, we now get three or four inch rains and or it rains for three weeks straight and, and um these are um, these are things that uh, uh, you know we can we can remedy by by farming this way. Yeah, I think that's a good example. Of farming is impacted by climate change, but it can also have a positive impact on mitigating these some of these impacts of climate change. And so, what do people who eat? Um, how, how do we respond to it? What, what's how do we become responsive? How do we observe and listen and respond to what we're hearing about our world well i would say uh read all you can uh and when you hear news about a negative environmental impact maybe try to look at it through the lens of food production and not just well what technology can we use to try to resolve this and that may create other problems that's one way to do it um, and 
uh, yeah, to ask policymakers to challenge policymakers to take a look at that big picture. And so, yeah, we're the last three minutes of shows. Uh, do you have any ideas, Loretta? Um, no, I think think Brian's covered them all really well. <laughs> and so, uh, Brian, I want to let people know how can they get the book, uh, Wildly Successful Farming? Um, it's in uh, all your independent bookstores throughout the books? Midwest. The University of Wisconsin Press has published it, and they've done a good job of getting it out. And uh, you can also order it direct from the University of Wisconsin Press website. Awesome. And um, so uh, I want to let people know that there's a Permaculture Action Day in Minneapolis coming up, and, and there's going to be a solidarity tour with Rising Appalachian Music. Um, so that's on, um, it's going to be a full day of event on Sunday, November 18th at Waite House, which is in Min- Minneapolis. So there's going to be food, they're going to be a conversation about food security and community activation. Um, and that's on Sunday, November 18th. I also encourage people to go check out Ellie's going to be speaking on Monday. So to go listen to her we've got some fun shows coming up uh, on november 10th we're going to have the president of the farmers minnesota farmers union here later in november we're going to be talking all things nafta with the institute of agriculture and trade policy um, in december we're going to have Larry hill meets and they're going to be talking about sourcing meat directly from local farms then we're going to have a meeting with regenerate the metro here on food freedom radio and uh, later in december terry gibbs with the alliance for sustainability to talk about the sustainable eating so the intersectionality, I mean, it's complex, but it is also, it, it's complex, depressing, but there is still hope, isn't there? Well, if you go out to a farm like uh, Loretta and Martin's, you will have a lot of hope. I, I will say that. Well, even you have a chapter called Wildly Optimistic. It's hard to be a pessimist in a land of new possibilities. So tell us about that quote. Let's end on that, Loretta. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> No, just Loretta, one of the things I talked about was how one common trait of farmers, these wildly successful farmers, is how optimistic they are. And I think you you, uh, you and Martin are a good example of that. Oh, well, yeah, because we've learned so much um, that we didn't learn in our formalized training. Um, but you just know every day there's a new surprise and there's something new you're going to learn and the connections become more clear. And, and so... I think I, I feel now like that we're at a place on the farm here where no matter what we do, we could screw up and the farm will save us. <laughs> I like that. I want that we could screw up and the farm will save us. The earth is okay. It will save us. We can, as long as we kind of learn how to listen to it. <laughs> exactly. Listen and observe. Observe, sense, listen, and then respond. Um, And you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Check out Wildly Successful Farming from Brian DeVore. And you know who I'm talking about.